And Father, we pray that not over just our denomination, but over each one of our lives, that, that you would work in us and give us strength and wisdom to, to walk in this world in a way that brings glory and honor to you, that when, that when people would see us, they would say, that person follows Christ. I can see it by the way they walk and talk and act. And so, Father, we know that we can't do that in our own strength, and we know that we regularly fail at that, which is why we keep coming back to you every moment of every day, relying on you. And that's also why we come to you, to your word. We come to your word daily, but we come to your word as a group, as a body on Sundays, because we know we need your wisdom. We know we need your guidance. We know we need to hear you speak to us. And so, Father, we do pray that you would speak to us clearly and powerfully this morning. Anything that may distract us or hinder us from hearing your word, any of our own fears or angers or frustrations or hurts, Lord, we pray that you would push that to the side so that we could truly hear you speak clearly and powerfully to each one of us this morning. And so, Father, we do pray that you would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. We're continuing in our series um, on human sexuality. Um, we've got a few more weeks uh, this week, and then the next two are all. Are, we'll kind of finish up the the broken part where we're talking about the brokenness around that in our world today. Um, and then I'll be gone for a couple of weeks for synod, and then I'll come back, and then we'll switch to the third part of this series where we're focusing on how God has redeemed it and, and is using it. And so, you know, when you get in the middle of the, like, brokenness part, you think, boy, it's kind of just a downer every week. And that's true, but, but we all realize that there's brokenness in all of this. We have to be able to recognize it and speak to that, uh, but know that eventually we will turn the corner and we'll be talking about the ways that God is redeeming all of these things. So today we're looking at Mark 10. Verses 1 through 12. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? Jesus replied, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, and he answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So my first 
question, especially since we already kind of know what I'm going to be talking about this morning, may seem like a little coming out of left field, um, but trust me, it will eventually apply. And the question is, what's it like to be a parent? And I appreciate the giggles because you're going to answer that question differently depending on what day it is, I assume. Um, Because some days you would say it's a joy and a delight and a blessing. And other days you may say it's a frustration and it's a chore and it's a delight or it's a burden. You know, it's like, ah, I don't know what's going on. And I really think um, raising children is probably one of the hardest things we ever have to do. Um, I, I, I always tried to tell teenagers who always complained to me about their parents, um, just realize that parenting feels like a blind man walking in a dark cave. Like, you just don't know what you're doing half the time. And so the question that popped into my head this week um, may startle you, but in the midst of understanding that parenting is like one of the hardest things we'll do, uh, the question is, have you ever actually considered walking away from your kids? Um, Like, come to the point of saying, you know, this is just really hard. It feels impossible. It's really unrewarding. Um, I'm just going to, to walk away from them. And the reality is, we know it happens. Uh, we know it has happened in history. But the interesting thing is, it has never, ever been culturally acceptable for someone to say, I can't raise my kids, it's too hard, I'm going to walk away from them. It's never been culturally acceptable because there's, there's this, what I'm going to use the word, there's this covenant that's made between a parent and their children. And, and the covenant is, you will raise that child until, well until you die, most likely. But you will, you will raise them, and that will change as they get older. But, but you are going to, and it doesn't matter how hard it is. It doesn't matter how difficult it is. It doesn't matter how disrespectful they are. It doesn't matter. They're yours. And you are raising them no matter what. And, and, and that covenant between a parent and a child has always been just recognized forever. And so... It's kind of crazy, really, or maybe even disturbing that, you know, some of these other covenants have kind of lost that place, right? And we're talking this morning, it already said it, we're talking about divorce, and, and the covenant of marriage has kind of lost that in our culture, that, that it's, it's very culturally unacceptable to kind of try to break the covenant between a parent and a child, but to break the covenant between a husband and a wife has become pretty culturally acceptable for the most part. In the church, of course, we've had a stance on this, so it's not as acceptable. But you get out into the world, and, and most people really don't even have a problem with it anymore. The, the bigger problem is trying to figure out how to divide resources is about the biggest problem. And so it, it really doesn't make sense to, 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 for this covenant to be seen as culturally unacceptable to break and this one to be totally fine with. And so, of course, we already saw this. Jesus starts talking about that with the Pharisees this morning. And, you know, as you see, as you read through the the Gospels, the Pharisees are always, they're asking Jesus questions with this 
goal of trying to trap him, right? They're, they're always trying to trap him. You almost feel, I can say that, you almost feel like during like an election process, right? Everybody's asking people like, before everybody in the world, what do you believe about this? And they're hoping they're going to say something that's going to ruin their whole campaign or whatever, right? Well, this is what they're doing with Jesus. They, they're like, oh, there's a crowd here. We're going to ask him about divorce, we're going to get him, and he's going to say something wrong, and then we can lock him up in jail or maybe kill him, right? That was their goal. And so they say, we're going to get him on this one. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And you get the feeling that because they're trapping him, they've been like debating behind the scenes, like what are the like four or five questions we can ask Jesus that are going to get him in trouble? And this is the one. But as I thought about this question, um, it's really... It's one of those questions, and Jesus is going to point that out. It's another bad question, right? There, it's kind of underneath it is like, can I get away with this? Can I get away with divorcing my wife? Or, just to connect it to last week's message, how far is too far? And, and Jesus points out, this is not a good question, but he does it uh, creatively because in their attempt to try to trap Jesus, he, he sets his own trap for them, and they fall into it. Because um, he asks them a question that he knows the answer, right? His, his response to them is, well, what did Moses command you regarding divorce? Now, do you think Jesus didn't know? Of course he knew what Moses had commanded about it. But, but he was setting them up, and of course you can... And this is all conjecture on my part. But the Pharisees were pretty proud about how well they knew the law, right? And so when Jesus asked them a question that they knew, I kind of picture them going, ha, we know this one. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Moses allowed divorce. They're proud. That they know this. And so on the one hand, Jesus might be saying, well, then why are you asking me this? if you already know the answer. But, but actually what Jesus does is he's kind of set the trap. Now they've fallen in it, and now he get, begins to point out to them um, that was the wrong question to be asking in the first place. Because the response maybe startles them, especially the Pharisees, right, who see the law of Moses as being like the epitome of everything. And Jesus says, well, actually, it was because of your hardness of heart that he wrote you this commandment. And so they were proud, like, we know Moses' law, and Jesus says, but actually this, this allowance in particular in Moses' law regarding divorce was only because he was dealing with a stubborn, rebellious people, and their hearts were that hard that Moses allowed it. And he's rebuking them by saying, your trust, you think the law is that great? Well, that's the only reason that law is there, because he was dealing with a stubborn and rebellious people. And I think what Jesus is doing, now this is me this is probably conjecture, but I think he's subtly pointing to the, the Pharisees and saying, and only a stubborn and rebellious people would be asking this question of me. Right? Because he's called them a stubborn, rebellious, hard-hearted, pit of vipe. I mean, he's called them a bunch of names. And this is his way of subtly saying, only a stubborn and rebellious people keep asking this question, how far is too far? What can I get away with? And so he kind of rebukes them and corrects them, and then he goes, 
If you actually want to understand marriage and divorce, you actually have to go back much further than the law of Moses. You have to go all the way back to creation, and uh, which, just a side note, that's why we spent five weeks <laughs> at the beginning of this service, uh, the series, looking at God's created design for all of this. And then after we took a break and came back, I spent another sermon reiterating all of that because what does Jesus do when people ask him about these things? He says, you got to go back to creation and understand that. And he says, actually, God's created design actually has more authority than the law of Moses. Moses had some allowances for the hardness of people's hearts, but God's design didn't have those allowances baked into it. And so if you want to understand this, you have to go back to the beginning and back to creation. And uh, Jesus doesn't mention this part, but he's talking about it. When we go back to creation, we remember this foundational statement that God made. It's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Right? And, and I reminded us when I preached a message on this one, but recently too, that that, like that statement teaches us that, that we've all, every human being has been created to be in relationship with God and with other people, right? And it's not that everybody has to be married, but the way that God solved the problem of our loneliness was he created marriage. It's like the fundamental relationship that solves the issue of loneliness because, well, just on a practical point, if there weren't marriages, we wouldn't have people and we would be lonely, right? You, you, come on. So, so he solved that problem by, by instituting marriage. And, and that's why he said, that's why Jesus answers the Pharisees and says, God made them male and female. And he's, that's like a fundamental aspect of, of what marriage is. And he he points it out when he says a man's going to leave his father and his mother. He's going to hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. I'll say this as subtly as possible because I don't want to be crass, but I think you guys get the, the point that like, in order for a man to hold fast to his wife, become one flesh, Jesus said it, it requires a male and a female. Like, that, that's part of the fundamental aspect of it. And so, like, the maleness and femaleness around marriage is, is this fundamental thing because it's, that's how God has designed it to work. But I don't really want to dwell on that today. What I want to dwell on is a bigger part of this passage that I think we've kind of misunderstood. Um, and it's the part where it says they will become one flesh. And, and it's been interesting over the years as I've talked with like premarital couple, couples or, or just any married couple and we talk about the, oh yeah, the, the one flesh thing. That most people, when I talk to them about that, talk about it as if we're, being one flesh means that we're like united in our soul with, with the other person, Right? Uh, it's pretty much what the most, most people think. Like, yeah, I'm one flesh with my wife, which means I'm one soul with my wife. Which is kind of interesting because it doesn't use the word soul. It uses the word flesh. You're, you're one flesh. And I think it's because we've kind of, and I keep saying this, but we've slowly kind of downplayed the, the body in the Christian 
our soul is our body is just kind of over here. And so when we read one flesh, we think one soul. And, and let's be honest, how in the world are we one flesh? How does that work? Um, and I would say it's hard to explain all of that. We'll get to it in a little bit. But the point is you're one with your spouse, and I would say body and soul. I think your souls are united 100% as well. But you're also one with them in body, like your flesh. You're, you're united to them, which means um, that a husband and wife are not a team. Um, I, I've heard that's, that's a pretty typical way I've heard people say, like, man, you guys have a great marriage. And they'll be like, yeah, we're a pretty good team. And not to be super technical, but you're not a team. You're, you're not two anymore. God says you are one. And, and that's a really big deal. You, you are completely united to one another, body and soul. And that was from the beginning God designed marriage to be that way. Um, I want to point something else out, and, and I just, I don't want to hang on it. It's kind of like a side note. Um, but I just heard a, a story just like three days ago that made me think I probably want to address this. Uh, notice when you get married, and this is all part of the design, God's created design of marriage. Notice when you get married how that changes your relationship between your parents, right? You said you, you leave your father and your mother, and you hold fast to your wife, or you hold fast to your husband. Um, which means, now, you, now your spouse is your priority and not your parents. It doesn't mean you don't honor your parents, but, but when it comes down to brass tacks in your marriage, your parents are not given the authority. Once you're married and you're united, your parents don't have the authority to come in and, and separate. And if you have to choose... God forbid, you, but you choose your spouse. And so I just heard a story of someone, you don't know this person, but just heard a story this week of a husband and wife whose the husband's parents were fighting about this and the wife was over here and the husband is kind of taking sides with his parents and separating himself from his wife. And I said, this should not be. You are one with her. You honor your father and mother, but you are one with your wife. You do not let your parents separate you. And, and here's, here's how we become one. Like, we don't understand it, but Jesus says this. God has joined you together. Like, how do we become one with somebody physically, in, in body and soul? And yes, we know that there are symbolic things that husbands and wives do that show oneness. Yes, physically. But, but you're united more than just in that act physically and, and with your soul. And it says, God does that. He joins you together. That when you stand up and, and make vows, right? We have our wedding. You make vows to one another, but you also make vows to God. And when you do that, God looks down and says, in that moment, some mysterious way that we don't quite understand, he joins you together, and now you're not two anymore. You are one body and soul. And, and you didn't join yourselves together. Your, your vows didn't join you together. God did it. Um, which is why Jesus goes on. He says, then what God has joined together, let man not separate. And it's really blunt and, and to the point. Jesus says, 
God has joined it, do not separate it. Uh, Don't put it on the table. Don't think about it. It's not there for you to do. Don't separate it. And, and I know when I, when I say that so pointedly, um, there's all of these like, but, 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 that kind of start welling up inside of us. But what about this situation? What about this circumstance? What about this? And what about this? And, 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 uh, and I don't want to, because they even well up in me, I'll be honest. And, but what I have to recognize is that when they start welling up in me, I realize that's the same thing that the Pharisees were doing. What about this nuance? What about this nuance? Can I, can I sneak around it in this way? How can I make this happen? And Jesus kept saying, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, united them body and soul, till death do they part. God's made them one. And then the, the really strong question comes out of that. If God has made you one, do you think you have the authority and the power to separate what God has united? I know it sounds harsh, and I don't want to be harsh with it, uh, because I know that, like, there's so much, like, I come up to speak about divorce with fear and trembling, just so you know, because I know there's so much emotion and pain and hurt, and there's so much that goes around it. And, And I'm not trying to be harsh, but I think we need to be clear that when we're talking about divorce, we're actually talking about going before our God and saying, you know, I know you made us one. But you're wrong, and I'm going to separate it. I mean, that's, like, do you think you can uncreate something that God created? And again, I, I just want to be clear that that's what's happening. And, and, and I get it, because I've, you know, I, I realize I'm a young pastor, but I have counseled Numerous couples who have been either have gone through divorce or who are contemplating divorce or their marriages have been on the rocks. I have, I have done quite a bit of this for being a young pastor. And, and I realize that what's happening in those marriages is that like things have gotten out of hand and now there's, there's this hurt and there's pain and there's struggle and, and, and people get to the point of just saying, like, I'm tired of being hurt. I'm tired of being in pain. I'm just tired of it. I need to find a way for the pain to stop. And so they start looking at divorce. And, and one of the commentators I read this week said, because husbands and wives are so close, right, you're one, you, it either creates a level of happiness that's greater than any other earthly happiness, or it creates a level of misery, <laughs> that's greater than any other earthly misery, right? And, and I think we all recognize that, right? That marriages can be difficult and filled with anger and frustration and heartbreak along with all of the joys of it, right? I sometimes have to tell the pre-marriage couples, like, I'm sorry I sound like such a wet blanket, but most of you have to go into marriage realizing this is going to be really, really tough at some points. And so when, when marriages begin being characterized by the toughness and the difficulty, People start looking for a way to kind of get rid of the pain because we don't, when things hurt, we want the pain to stop. But the problem is, divorce seems like it's going to stop the pain, but it's not. And if you, could, if you talk to anybody who's been divorced, they're going to say it actually is going to end up making the pain worse and, and more permanent because you can't separate something that God has joined 
together. John Calvin says it pretty clearly. He says, he who divorces his wife tears from him, as it were, the half of himself. Because God has made you one. Not a team. You don't, you don't leave it whole. You leave it uh, with half of, your, half of yourself missing. And so this is why we have to understand the oneness of what marriage is. It's, it's not a team. It's one. And, and so divorce doesn't solve the problem. It actually ends up making it worse and making it permanent. And uh, I'm sure many of you, or I don't know how many of you have watched the movie Fireproof. It's kind of a Christian movie talking about a couple that's been struggling in their marriage. It's about a husband and wife. They've been really struggling. They're kind of contemplating divorce. And um, at one point in the movie, they, the, the husband's talking to his friend and saying, I, I think I'm going to divorce her because, you know, she's just pretty miserable. And, and the friend takes a salt and a pepper shaker and, like, puts some super glue on them, sticks them together, gives them to the guy and says, now you try to separate these two without breaking them. Like, if you try to, there, something's going to break, right? And that's a pretty good analogy. But again, it's still not quite accurate, is it? Because God doesn't just join two salt, a salt and a pepper shaker. He makes them one. They're not just glued together. Like, if you're really careful with a salt and pepper shaker that's been glued together, like, and you take a scalpel, and you're, you, can, you can separate them without breaking them too much. Um, but that's not what God did. He didn't, make, he didn't join two things. He made them one. And so a better analogy of divorce is trying to rip a teddy bear apart. Because it's one, and it's going to wreck the whole thing. It's going to be a mess. It's, it just doesn't, isn't going to work, and that teddy bear will not be the same again by the time you're done with it. And so, again, we, we, we start thinking divorce or, or talking divorce because there's been all this hurt and pain. And, and most of that, as we recognize, that hurt and pain is coming from sinful actions and attitudes, Right? And uh, you, get, you put two people together who are sinners, and you say, now live together forever. <laughs> Through difficult situations, people are going to do stupid things to one another, and they're going to sin against each other over and over again. And, and I can just bluntly say that after all of the counseling that I've done, 99.9% of the time, the sinful attitudes and actions are coming from both parties, right? I think we just all have to... I mean, even if you're in a healthy marriage, let's pound that in our head for the most part. You are part of the problem. <laughs> and, and so there's this history of sinful actions and attitudes, and then they keep kind of compounding against one another. And, and when that happens, we, we try to look for a way out, right? We try to look for a way, for a way out of the pain. Um, but the, the, again, the problem is like a sinful action, a sinful decision, doesn't fix a history of sinful actions or decisions, right? And so we, we all know that and all it does is just kind of perpetuate this downward spiral. We, we know this cultural phrase like two wrongs don't make a right. And, uh, and the same thing happens where um, a sinful action or a deci- sinful decision never fixes another sinful action or decision. It'll only just kind of increase the spiral. That has to do with marriage. That has to do with anything. If someone, someone yells at you angrily and you try to fix it by punching them in the face, 
you're not going to fix it. <laughs> you're going to make it worse. And it's the same kind of a thing in a, in a marriage as well. Yes, there's been sinful actions and attitudes leading up to this point, but taking another one isn't going to make it better. Um, I want to I wanna talk about the last part of this verse, and I, I'm realizing time, and, uh, and I'm realizing that I might just open up a huge can of worms, because I should probably spend a whole sermon on this one, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to give you the principle and maybe let you sit uneasy with it, because I think Jesus says something that really makes people angry. So if you want to get angry, <laughs> you get angry at Jesus, not me, right? Because um, he ends it, he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. That's a hard one for us, isn't it? Um, but it's, it's clear. And, and the, here's, the, here's kind of the, the core principle underneath this, is that not all divorces are, are divorces. Or another way to say it is not all legal divorces are considered a divorce in God's eyes. Because that's why he says, if you get a legal divorce and then you go marry someone else, he says, you're, you're committing adultery. And so, I, you know, I, again, I realize I could spend a lot of time on this and we could try to get into all of the nuances. Well, what does constitute a legal divorce and what could? And, and we could get down the, the road of the Pharisees. And I just want to say, uh, uh, there's a lot of yeah buts, as Larry would say. Um, the only really clear grounds for divorce in Scripture is, is adultery. It's about the clearest one. There's some other ones that are in um, that we could maybe have a longer conversation about, but that's about the only clear allowance that Jesus gives for divorce is in case of adultery. And even then, I want to say, Jesus doesn't say in that moment you're required to get a divorce or that it's even good to get a divorce. He just says, in that instance, it's allowed. Um, and, and so I, I realize I could be opening a can of worms, but um, I hope I get that it's tough. But as you read through Scripture, the, the repeated refrain from the beginning is, divorce will not make it better. In that moment, it thinks, you think it'll make it better, but in the long run, it won't. And, uh, and it won't end up bringing honor to God in the long run. And so when you find yourself in that position, the, the question is, so what do I do? And, uh, and the, I know this sounds way overly, like a, an overly simple solution. Um, love your spouse. That's what you do. And, uh, and I'm going to say it really bluntly, and I say it bluntly because I have to tell myself it this bluntly all the time. So I hold myself to the same, same standard too. Get over yourself, Jason, and love your wife. Do you feel like it today? No. Doesn't matter. Go love your wife. Is she ticking you off today? Yes. Doesn't matter. Go love your wife. And uh, I remember this story. I don't remember where it came from. I don't even know if it's a true story or if it's one of these like preacher stories that they just make up. But it's a good one anyway, so I'm going to use it. And uh, there's a, a man came to his pastor 
uh, to talk to his pastor about his marriage that was, that was falling apart. And so the pastor listened to him, and he was talking about, you know, how difficult his wife was, how unloving his wife was. She's just angry at me all the time. She's doing this. She doesn't do the dishes. She doesn't do this. She doesn't really love me. And uh, eventually the pastor opens his Bible and says, well, Scripture tells you, love your wife. And the man says, well, pastor, I didn't really want to bring this up, but things have been really bad lately. Um, she moved out. She's like living with some friends down the street. And the pastor flips a few pages and says, Scripture says, love your neighbor. Well, pastor, I didn't want to get this blunt. I don't like to tell pastors this, but she is miserable. She is like, I, 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 she is angry and she just screams. And, and uh, like sometimes I just hate her. The pastor flips the pages a couple times. Well, the Bible says, even if that's true, love your enemy. And the point is, you love your spouse. Whether you feel it or not, like, I'm not going to say, like, the feeling of love is not there. That's a thing, right? But it's not always just a feeling. Sometimes you just get over it and you love them. And you start loving them. When you don't feel like it, even if it doesn't feel good, it doesn't matter, love them. And in Scripture, talks about this. Uh, one of the famous chapters in the Bible that talks about this is Ephesians 5, and it kind of comes at it from a different point of view, where it says, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. This gets back to the oneness thing again, doesn't it? Why, why are husbands supposed to love their, their wives as their own body? Because she is your own body. Why are wives supposed to love their husbands as if they're their own body? Because he is your body. You're not two separate bodies. You've been united, body and soul. And so you need to love that other person as you do your own body because they are. And the point he's making is, Really, when you get down to brass tacks, nobody actually hates their body, all right? And I know people are going to say, but I think I should lose a few pounds. I don't care. But you, you care for your body, right? You feed it. You nourish it. If, you slight, if it gets cut open, you bandage it up. If you're about to do something, <laughs> this is mainly for guys. If you're about to do something stupid, you put like a helmet on, right? So you, don't, so you protect your body somewhat because you, you care for your body. And it says, now understand that your wife is your body, or your husband is your body, now care for them in that same way. Make sure you're feeding them, body and soul. Make sure when they're wounded or damaged or cut, you're bandaging up their wounds, body and soul. Make sure when they're going through a difficult season and it seems like, like they could trip and fall and get hurt in all the metaphorical ways, you're standing with them putting on safety gear, protecting them in the middle of that and doing that body and soul. That's how you love them. And if you start doing that, for one, you're going to go a long way to just keeping your marriage healthy in the first place. But, but if you've gotten to the point where it feels like your marriage is on the rocks, you start doing that. Start nourishing them, 
caring for them, bandaging up wounds, protecting them. And that will go a really long way to making your marriage healthy once again. And, and as I kind of wrap up, I always like to end by reminding us that you know, God knows and understands uh, divorce much better than any of us do. And uh, it's, it's throughout all of the Bible, Old and New Testament. But if you start reading through the Old Testament, um, especially the prophets, you're going to see repeated reference after repeated reference of God being married to his people and them being a stubborn and rebellious, stiff-necked people who are running away from God, trying to divorce him constantly, committing adultery against him with every other God and nation on the earth. And so God knows. He knows what it's like to be committed to someone who is stubborn and rebellious. And yet he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. No matter how stupid you get, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. And I'll continue to call you back. And I'll continue to be here for you. And so when, when God understands these things better than we do, and then he says to us, you know, this isn't going to make anything better, we should understand that. And the flip side is that Scripture tells us that actually the mystery of marriage, and we're going to get into this further when we get to the redeemed section, but the mystery of marriage is that it points to Christ and the church. That your marriage is to be a reflection of this relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. Like, that's the standard which is a high calling as well. But, but when we look at the way that Christ provides for, protects, cares for his church, nourishes his church, um, self-sacrificially lays down his life for the church, um, that's the picture we're called to live out in our marriages. But we also keep looking to Christ because we recognize that we're going to mess this up. Right? Ask my wife. I mess up, right? <laughs> She'll, maybe she won't gladly. T- don't ask my wife. She doesn't want to talk to you about that. But, <laughs> but either way, she knows. You all know. Like, I'm messing this up. You're all going to mess it up. And some of us have messed it up in the past. And thank God that we can come to our Savior who said, yeah, you messed up, but I'm not leaving you. You turn away from your sin. You hold on to me. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to restore you. And I'm going to help you live the new life I've called you to live because I'm not going anywhere. Um, and, and we can have this level of confidence because we know that our Savior's made that commitment to us and he's not walking away. And so we can live in that comfort, but then my encouragement is we don't just live in that comfort. We begin to make that, allow that comfort to change the way we engage in our marriages. And I would encourage you to go home Look at your spouse today and say, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you, so help me God. Let's come to him in prayer. Father, we, we come before you really in awe of your faithfulness. We come before you recognizing how far we often fall short uh, 
We come before you recognizing our own unfaithfulness. And yet, your faithfulness just stands out even brighter in the midst of that. And we come to you just thankful for that promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And Lord, when we come to you confessing our own unfaithfulness, confessing our own failures and fears and doubts, our own selfishness, Lord, we're thankful that we can come to you confessing those things but also resting in your forgiveness, knowing that you're right there to renew us, restore us, cleanse us, set our feet on the rock. So, Father, we not only ask your forgiveness, but we ask that you would send us out from here as renewed and restored people, especially for those of us who are married or have had difficulties in our marriage in the past or trying to figure out how to live in this in the future. Father, we pray that you would grant us strength and wisdom to do that well and to live in the way that brings glory and honor to you, to live in our marriages whether struggling or, or flourishing, Lord, to live in our marriages in a way that points people to you and to your relationship with the church. So, Father, give us wisdom. Give us strength. Help us to live in a way that brings glory and honor to you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.